Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alpha. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we're joined by our special correspondent, Harry Lambert, to talk about the decline of the Labour Party. And you ask us, what is the point of manifesto promises? We're delighted today to be joined by our special correspondent, Harry Lambert, who has basically been speaking to everyone in the Labour Party, it seems, for months for his brilliant piece, which is the cover story of the most recent issue of the New Statesman. The headlines, Labour's lost future, the inside story of a 20-year collapse. And it's quite an interestingly structured piece because it basically goes through the decline of the Labour Party in 10 acts. Could you take us through those acts, Harry, if you if you remember them? <laughs> it was quite an ordeal working out exactly as you put it to me before the show, which of the many failings we'd highlight. But the whole point about the piece is to say that none of the four or, or even five now leaders since 2001 are excused from responsibility for what happened here to Labour over the last 20 years. So the first few points deal with Tony Blair. We start with the 2001 election. And, you know, though a fabulous victory in many ways and the high point of new Labour, turnout had collapsed. We look at how Blair won the weakest mandate in history. And then to rattle through them, we, we touch on Iraq. The second point, then the mishandling of EU migration uh, as a third. Gordon Brown's failure to call the 2007 election as a fourth. And then a series of points around austerity, the coalition, David beating Ed. Where are we now? Oh, and then we've got Scotland in 2014, which sort of dates back again into the Blair and Brown eras, but but really hits under Miliband. And then finally, we look at, you know, Corbyn's false dawn in 2017 and, and ultimately the catastrophic way that Labour handled Brexit. I wonder when you were going through each of these different eras in the Labour Party's modern history, whether you thought that one stood out as sort of the the turning point of the party's fortunes or whether they each sort of had their own weight in the story. So the, the one that a lot of people point to is 2010. Alan Johnson says to me, you know, no one won that 2010 election. We lost, but it was a hung parliament with everything to play for. And, you know, here was our chance to spend a small period out of office and then come back. You know, people still do now talk about that being the pivotal moment where the party took a new direction. It's so interesting as well, reading the piece. I suppose, just given the day job, I read it really 
with one eye always on what it means for Labour now and what lessons the party could be learning. And I just thought it was so interesting that kind of even back to the very first one, there are lessons for Labour there or questions for Labour that the party hasn't quite addressed. So, for example, you mentioned, I think it was, it's a really interesting starting point that you chose 2001, so the new Labour re-election, and you argue that that was the high point rather than the initial election because re-election was so rare for the Labour Party. But then how underneath, how, how, you know, that, that re-election underneath that there was actually a different story of the of the vote collapsing and turnout being quite low and you're right you know from for many core labor voters abstention was their first break with a party to which they never returned and it's interesting because at the moment labor is grappling with this question i think it, it hasn't been reported on so much but certainly there's so much talk about red wall voters and those voters who switched to the conservatives But I think that there's also a growing awareness in the party that another issue is just people not turning out for Labour. And one of the ways in which Labour nearly reversed its decline was 2017, where actually one of the things that Corbyn's Labour got right was turning out a lot of non-voters. And in 2019, arguably, the party lost just as many people to, to not voting as they did to the Conservatives. And so the, the challenge is kind of doing both at the next election as well as holding on to their core. I'm wondering, a a bit like Anush's last question, having all these conversations, as you mentioned, you spoke to 20 people with a huge amount of insight into recent Labour history. I'm wondering what kind of lessons you think sprung out immediately for Labour to be thinking about and learning from, for now. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question. So I speak to Keir Starmer in the piece, and and he, you know, is quite vague. I would, I would argue about the lessons that should be learned. I essentially said to him, you know, what do you think the key lesson of the last twenty years is? And he's already said to me earlier in the piece, you know, that he thought Iraq was hugely damaging, and that Labour's inability, again going back to twenty ten, to defend its record was a major failing, which was a, an implicit criticism of Ed Miliband. But I said, look, Keir, what's the what's the broader message? And he said to me that Labour needs to be turned inside out so that we're voter facing rather than inward looking. And, you know, I wasn't overwhelmed by, by that message. I think the point that for me is so important to make is Labour leaders usually fail. You know, eight of the last 10 Labour leaders going back to Attlee's loss in 51 have lost when they've stood for election. Only one Labour leader born in the past century, only one Labour leader born in the past century has won an election. So I think that for me is probably the key point to take away. And the the story of these 20 years is the story of a historical aberration in the early 2000s that quickly, well, slowly and then quickly, you know, collapsed. So as one person put it to me, it didn't make it into the piece, that Labour played politics on hard mode in, in the UK. And I think that's the really important point to remember that it's like really hard for Labour to win. And so Keir Starmer has like a really, really high bar to meet. And I'm not convinced he's he's anywhere close to meeting it. That's so interesting. And I think there's a really strong section in the piece talking about sort of Labour's failure to defend its record in government, but also allowing that narrative that Labour, and I'm doing quote marks here, maxed out the, the country's credit card. 
that George Osborne and David Cameron and then Nick Clegg so successfully argued, their failure to counter that narrative. And I, I still see it because when, when Alva said she sort of read this with one eye on, on the Labour Party today, I was doing the same. And I still see the fallout from that problem. And it's sort of morphed into this problem in individual constituencies where people are blaming Labour for the impact of austerity even though it was a conservative, well, coalition government policy, because they've had Labour councils and Labour MPs for such a long time, and they've seen their areas decline. And that was put to me by one Labour MP as, as the, the big essay question for the party is how, you know, they, they communicate to voters that this is not their record. And I don't know if you got any answers about how they still counter that narrative. Well, just on that, it's amazing to me that, that the Labour Party was so bad at explaining that, you know, debt as a proportion of GDP fell under their their leadership for, for, for 11 years, you know, between 97 and 2008. Labour did not spend historically large amounts of money. Uh, it was only the financial crash that caused, you know, deficits to explode. And yet Osborne managed to justify austerity on the, on the basis that Labour had overspent when the, the facts simply didn't support that idea. But you see this all throughout the whole period. You, you know, you've got the immigration debate in the 2000s, you've got austerity around 2010, you've got Brexit in the 2010s. On all three of these major, major discussions, Labour always lose the argument that they may well win the policy argument. You know, they may well be right on immigration. They may be right on countering austerity. They may have even been right on calling for a second referendum, but they always lose the political argument. And is that a sort of structural failing or is that just a series of incompetent errors by, by people involved in power? That's sort of the question that remains hard to answer, I'd say. Maybe this is too backward facing, but I, I, I'm still fascinated by dissecting what went wrong. I think it's much harder to kind of prophesize and, and think about what happens next until you answer those questions. One particular moment, which I think is really interesting to think about if, if we're sort of focused on on looking back and thinking about what went wrong and what could have been different. There's one clear moment, which is Gordon Brown's dither over whether to call an early election. I feel like maybe we have a difference of opinion on it because I always feel that actually Theresa May <laughs> proved that maybe Gordon Brown shouldn't have worried so much about that great dither because, you know, she actually did go for it. I think maybe, who knows if she was consciously learning from Gordon Brown's mistake or so she thought when she called her early election. But it, it just shows how quickly polls can change and then, and then how boxed in you can be by a hung parliament or, you know, a minority government depending on votes from the DUP or whatever the case may be. So it seems entirely possible that despite the poll, Labour wouldn't have won. And then you make a really interesting point, Harry, that actually, even if Labour had lost, it would have been advantageous. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because it kind of relates to the last point. Yeah, so I think with that, Alva, the you know the thing about Brown is it's so long ago now, right? Fourteen years ago, I think you can easily go through this, the thought experiment as we do that that calling that 07 election would have been good. I was just so stunned by the way that the polls reacted so viscerally, so quickly to Brown failing. And the point is that he sort of saved David Cameron. But you also make a really interesting point, which is that if they had called that election and it had been the Conservatives in power for the financial crash, then maybe that narrative that has been so difficult for Labour and continues to be so difficult for Labour would have gone differently? I suppose that's just, that's such an open question. I suppose one will never know because I think the Conservatives would have only been in power for a minute when it would have happened. So 
maybe they would have managed to construct that that narrative anyway about how Labour had managed the economy despite your point about the profligate spending sort of happening happening after the crash. Well, I think it's it's about distinguishing between two ideas, right? Is it profligate spending that Labour being blamed for or is it the lack of regulation? And the whole point my, of mine is that, yeah, if, if Osborne had come in in 07 and, the, and the, the deficits had spiraled on his watch, they could have only have criticised Labour for regulation. But, you know, no Tory party is going to successfully criticise the Labour party for, for failing to regulate sufficiently. The thing about labour overspending is it plays into long-held fears. That's what Ed Bowles was saying to me. You know, people have always thought that labour were going to overspend. That's always been the historical concern. And so as a political project, you know, you're, you're most vulnerable when the other side has an argument which taps into people's long-seated fears about you as a, as a party. And that was what was so damaging in the end about the financial crash for labour. Yeah, I, I think it's just, it's such a good point because it's it's clearly easier to accuse Labour of overspending than it is to accuse them of failing to regulate the city appropriately, which is probably the, the real criticism that should be mounted of, of New Labour. It is just so interesting whether just the way that election didn't happen and the way the financial crash fell, whether that just handed the Conservatives a gift that they've managed to benefit from and, and allow to sort of shape the narrative of, around politics for absolutely decades since. You see all sorts of these these little small comments that still come up. Like I just went and bought the issue in preparation for this to, to, to have a look over. And the, the news agent who sold it to me, he pointed at Gordon Brown on the cover and he said, oh yeah, Brown, he sold all the gold. And that's something <laughs> that I hear still comes up. Focus, people that run yeah. focus groups say that's still what people know about Gordon Brown. So, you know, it's just these little things like he sold all the gold, labor overspent. These just these simple ideas that, that grip into the, the national consciousness and labor just really bad at preventing them from settling in. That's really true. When you shadow politicians door knocking now, you still hear things like that. Changing the subject slightly, I, I found it interesting that during your interviews, it appears that even some of the leading figures of the Labour Party currently seem to still be making up their minds about sort of what went wrong and what should be corrected. There's an interesting line where you say you're talking to Starmer about Corbyn's campaign in 2017 and he calls it successful, but then he corrects himself. And I wondered whether you could give us a little bit of insight into that part of the conversation. Yeah, so I think Keir's caught in such, between such a rock and a hard place. The fundamental problem he has is that, as, as someone said online, one half of the Labour project thinks that the leader of the other half is the great evil in the party. In other words, you know, you have Corbyn and Blair who are such two different wings of the Labour Party and Keir has to somehow mollify both of them. And so he does that in the piece by by praising Corbyn for 2017 on the one hand and then also saying we should have defended New Labour's record on the other. That's an incredibly tough position because I'd argue that there's probably more space between Blair and Corbyn or rather their supporters than, than in many ways between sort of Labour and the Tories in previous eras. So Keir, I just think, was 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 struggling with that question as he inevitably will, will have to struggle with it because it's not really obvious how you resolve those tensions. And you spoke to so many people and obviously the premise of the piece is Labour's lost future and its sort of doom-laden prospects. Did, did anyone sort of voice any optimism who you spoke to? Or did anyone <laughs> sort of counter the premise of your piece? Um, no. 
Absolutely not. No one said, actually, you know what? It's been a good ride because obviously the party's <laughs> lost over half of its MPs in that time. So, you know, the facts speak for themselves. Was anyone optimistic? I don't think so. I think they said, this is what needs to change. This is what we need to do. I don't think anyone is particularly confident about how you do that. But just can I ask the two of you? I mean, what did you, as I said, there's so many points in there that you could have included. Was there anything that stuck out to the two of you that you would have liked to see and discussed? Uh, any points that you thought we missed out? Or just that we, you know, overemphasized, underemphasized. I don't consider this to be the answer. I just, you know, assembled a, an answer. I think I find it most instructive as a really helpful insight into what all the people you were speaking to think was the problem. Because that in itself is so revealing. Because those are the people, who, well, in, in lots of cases, certainly in Keir Starmer's case, it's that analysis which will determine what happens next. And there's a sense of it sort of still being in flux. I suppose I had never really thought of it that way in terms of key moments or sort of big historical blunders and have always thought of it more as a as a deep cultural trend, I suppose, around immigration and different demographic changes and um, like the actual sort of the tectonic plates shifting in terms of where people live in the UK, you know, just in terms of people moving out of towns and the labour vote piling up in cities, ageing population, different patterns of home ownership, different like cultural divides emerging. I think I've, I've so often seen the labour decline that way or just from a very sort of pragmatic thinking about what needs to happen now and the winning coalition that would need to be forged not I. I certainly didn't feel like there was a moment that you missed or anything. I just find it really interesting to see it in terms of moments, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I'm just going to say on the structural stuff, you know, it's a really in- interesting question. Like, should Labour get a pass for the fact that their, their voting base is narrowed into cities? Or should they be criticised for failing to, you know, play the game in front of them, which is that you have to win seats, and therefore you have to win you know, have to assemble a coalition that can win a majority of seats. It's not really good enough to just say, oh, well, you know, our vote is is disproportionately located in the cities. It's like, well, then your your vote isn't <laughs> isn't good enough. You know, you have to you have to work out is is would you take that view as well? Or or you would you sort of give Labour a break on that? Well it's, I suppose it's by the same token, two thousand one wasn't really a failure. Even Definitely if not. underneath the surface there wasn't a great turnout because actually the distribution of Labour's coalition was a winning coalition, which is all the party needs. So any party Definitely. needs just forge that coalition and win. So um, that was, yeah, that was another great bit of the piece. I thought that really there's, I think, a second story underneath the story of Labour and the decisions being made at the top of the way our voting system works. And then as people move and demographics change and the population ages, patterns of home ownership and you know, university entry, those all change. Suddenly, you know, it's it's never that many millions of votes in between whoever wins and whoever loses, but the distribution changes and suddenly what what was once a winning coalition isn't or the coalition has changed and you need to forge a new one, which I just think is is fascinating. Each of these moments, I think, that you point out, at least going back the past 10 years or 15 years, you know that that, that narrative underneath it of 
Labour's voters changing and the way people work changing. And as Alva was saying, the, the, where people live and sort of how people live has been changing all the time. And, and it's touched on in, in the section about losing Scotland and Margaret Hodge saying, you know, we became dislocated from those voters. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, for the time that I've been covering politics, particularly looking at the Labour Party since Ed Miliband's leadership, that those are underlying concerns that MPs have been voicing sort of since those days. And it's covered very well. I don't know whether you two have had time to read it yet. I'm reading it at the moment. Seb Payne's book, Broken Heartlands, where he sort of goes through, I think, 10 of the constituencies that Labour sort of unexpectedly lost to to the Conservatives in the most recent election, the so-called Red Wall. And he's looking into the trends, you know, of basically people's day-to-day lives that have taken them away from the Labour Party. So I think that's a, that's an interesting shift. But like you say, Labour shouldn't be given too much leeway on that because we know that this has been happening for a really long time. And surely there were ways of of countering that if the party had been more alive to it. Because, you know, I remember speaking to people about, you know, the cliches of the rugby league towns a long, long time ago now. But every time these seats are lost or, or a shift like this happens, it always sort of seems like this huge surprise or huge disaster when I think a lot of these these changes could could have been predicted. Just on 2001, very quickly, by the way, I think I try and make the point in the piece that it's only in hindsight that that election looks like a like a warning light, as as Rob Ford says to me. Obviously, you know, it's a, it's a winner on its own terms for sure. It's just the moment where you can start to date the the crumbling. Well, I suppose the the other thing that's there in the piece as maybe a reason for hope for Labour members and MPs and so on listening to this would be that. Batley and Spen was not the nail in the coffin that it was expected to be by many people. And because of the timings of the piece, that is not so much a factor in, in this story, but it's sort of present because you were speaking to Keir Starmer just beforehand and he, you know, you say that he was expecting to lose and so on. But I suppose Batley and Spen is an interesting example of how this is, you know, this is not irreversible or insurmountable, that Labour MPs who worked on the campaign would say that actually, despite the fight from George Galloway, they managed to forge a new coalition of voters quite quickly. And it actually was the kind of voters that they probably did alienate over Iraq, over financial mismanagement, over immigration. And because of this, like, longer term distancing from certain kinds of voters in the traditional heartlands they did manage to win quite a lot of those people back and because it was just a by-election it wasn't some sort of huge national long general election campaign we probably haven't started to quite look at what they did there and how that worked but it's interesting that they did sort of manage to turn it around just about yeah, just on that, I don't want to depress anyone further. I wouldn't argue that Battling Spen was a strong result in any way. It was an incredibly marginal victory. Kim Ledbetter won, you know, a third of the vote there. Going back to the 2019 election, you know, <laughs> they won that quite that seat quite comfortably and barely held on to it in 2021. So I, I don't know if, for me, that would offer a roadmap to success. Although I suppose like the George Galloway effect is a contained phenomenon, like he can only stand in one seat. And also there is the other question of, <laughs> and I know this is this is probably too, too pessimistic, but are these kind of little victories in, in the course of a sort of faltering opposition's time in opposition actually helpful? 
because if they'd lost in Batley and Spen, I mean, I'm sure there would have been a lot of drama and infighting that was unnecessary, but, you know, would it have brought about the changes necessary to be in a better state come the next general election? Because there are a few by-elections, one under Ed Miliband's leadership, that perhaps sort of masked the decline of the party in certain areas. Definitely. Just on that, finally, I mean, what are the changes necessary for Labour to be successful? That's the real question. And one of them is leadership. And Keir Starmer's approval ratings have collapsed from 39 to 26%, which is equivalent to the collapse in Blair's ratings during the Iraq war. So, you know, yet again, a Labour leader has now stumbled into fairly serious unpopularity and we can have endless theoretical conversations, but if, if that's going to be the case, then it's always hard for them to win elections, as I've said, and, and it's hard to see why someone on 26% is going to do so. All right. Well, we, we I think we were trying to end on a, on a positive note, but we didn't quite get there. <laughs> but I'm, but th- <laughs> I'm incapable of it, clearly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for committing to the theme of your piece, Harry, so, so comprehensively. Um, and thanks for coming on and speaking to us about the piece and how you put it together. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry for the pessimism. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget that you can now listen to our special Germany Elects podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th. Available now on the World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com Germany. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So we have an interesting question today from Ishrak. With news of the government's plan to break its manifesto pledge not to increase national insurance, what is the point of manifestos anymore if parties can go back on their promises? So this is a reference to the, well, what we're expecting to be the plan to reform social care, which is supposed to be funded, although we don't have the official detailed plan yet, by an increase in national insurance to cover the cost. Obviously, the Conservatives had that manifesto promise in 2019 not to raise national insurance, VAT or income tax. So it would be a break of a manifesto pledge, which is concerning many individuals in the Conservative Party. But this question, I like it because it's more theoretical. It sort of is asking what the point of manifestos even are if if pledges can be broken so easily. Alva, what do you think? So this is reminding me of when I stood for election as welfare officer when I was at university. (laughs) The golden days. Back in my heyday. (laughs) I had a great manifesto. (laughs) 
of all the things. I was going to be the best welfare officer that had ever existed. And it occurred to me when I was actually elected, sort of maybe six months in or something, it occurred to me that I didn't even remember what I'd put in my manifesto. (laughs) And certainly no one else did. And I'm sure if I tried to find it, I would just discover that I didn't do pretty much any of the specific things I had suggested doing or the bolder ideas. And really all that people were electing me on was my general vibe. And that actually in that role, I was just mainly dealing with the day-to-day demands of the job, which were quite different and often unforeseen. And so... <laughs> drawing a rather lofty parallel between the posts of welfare officer at my university and prime minister. <laughs> I wonder if it's similar in that <laughs> clearly clearly people think that there will be some sort of electoral cost if they consistently fail to deliver on promises. But I actually think that it's maybe part of the sort of the democratic contract that people know that they are electing a person in an individual MP or a party based more on trust that they will handle what's thrown at them than on on the specific pledges that are made. I think it is actually more about the, the spirit and the vibe than the precise promises, So, which is why I think that actually, for example, Nick Clegg breaking his promises on tuition fees was of a different order of magnitude to Boris Johnson promising not to increase taxes. And then after a few years in which we've seen, you know, unprecedented spending and an unprecedented crisis, I I think that I would imagine the public would be quite forgiving of broken manifesto pledges. So I think it actually makes sense that that people don't hold to manifesto pledges perfectly. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction, I think. And, you know, I think it's underappreciated, actually, in politics, how many manifesto pledges are, you know, just not achieved in in an administration's time in office. So I think that the Conservatives failed to fulfil half of their 2017 manifesto pledges, which didn't stop. And I know it was obviously a different leader leading the party into the next general election after that one, but it didn't stop people voting them in again. And, you know, some of those broken promises were were quite big ones. So, you know, leaving the EU is one of them, which obviously Boris Johnson used to great effect during his own campaign, almost campaigning against, you know, the, the past iteration of his party under Theresa May. And there's been pledges that have been consistently broken, for example, taking net migration down to the tens of thousands, for example. And I think you're right, you know, if the public like your vibe, so to speak, then those details, you know, even when it's it, 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 it's, it's available for the opposition party to exploit and say, look, you know, they bo- broke 
X out of X promises on this, this and this, even when it can be very clear what they've done and what they've failed to do, it doesn't necessarily mean that the general public punishes them for it. Having said that, I think it can cause a lot of difficulty within your own party and for party management. So a Conservative Party going into an election promising not to raise taxes, you know, that's something that Tory MPs or Tory candidates running in that election can be really proud of. You know, that's something that most Conservative MPs like to stand on those kind of pledges. They don't like the idea of raising taxes. They don't like the idea of selling tax rises to their voters or their potential voters. And so for that to be broken, I think, is an issue in terms of not necessarily the public trusting the government, but your own MPs who have campaigned for you on that manifesto, the promises that you made available to them on the doorstep, it it breaks the trust with them if they believe that policy is important enough. And, you know, this is an this is obviously a sore point within the Conservative Party because it is an ideologically poignant thing. You know, the Conservative Party traditionally is the party of low taxes. And so I think for this particular subject for Boris Johnson to, to break his promise on is going to cause difficulty, not necessarily for the general public who do want to see reform of social care, but for the party's own MPs and probably its grassroots as well, those more traditional conservative associations who like to see the party sticking to its traditional tenets and not becoming a party of big spending, despite the fact that that the government can, and to an extent reasonably argue that these are extraordinary times. And I also wonder if there is a bigger cultural problem around manifestos that probably a lot of it is on us as journalists and maybe the public would have a better sense of which manifesto pledges have been met, which were not, what the government's progress was according to all of their own criteria, if those were the criteria that we judged governments by, but we don't really tend to. The good people at the IFG, the Institute for Government, who we love, (laughs) um, we give them shout outs all the time. they have, I can't remember what they call it, but they, you know, a government monitor or a manifesto monitor where they do track the government's progress against its manifesto pledges, which I think, if anything, just demonstrates how difficult delivery in government really is. But I don't think it's in our political culture to measure those things. And so there are big things, for example, especially, you know, during the conservative leadership campaign the promises that Boris Johnson made going into becoming prime minister and then going into the election, those are quite fresh in everyone's memory in a lot of cases. And there's some big ones like the prominent ones on tax. But in general, I, I think that, as you say, so often, you know, they go in manifesto after manifesto and they're just never met. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you're right. I do think it's an issue of highlighting that you know, an issue for for the media of highlighting that also for the opposition party of successfully making political hay with it. And like you say, it does depend on the subject. But unfortunately, it does seem to be, I mean, do you remember when Boris Johnson was running in the the general election, and they would have those debates about whether people could trust him or whether he tells the truth, and you would, you know, literally hear the TV audience laughing about that very prospect. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether it was when he was running for the leadership or whether it was during the the general election. But I I do think it, it's almost, and it's a bit goes back to what we were talking about on the Armando Iannucci podcast about accountability. 
it almost seems to be priced in that politicians do break their promises sometimes. And I think if they manage to style it out in, in a way that suggests that they simply had to and their hands were tied in order to do something that is popular. So in this case, reforming social care or, you know, providing more money for the social care and health service, then I think voters can quite quickly forget about it. But as I said, I, I don't think the problem here is necessarily the voters who voted for them. I do think it is the Conservative candidates who ran on that manifesto. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelia, and my colleague, Alva Ray. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review.